we just couldn't we just couldn't think of a better way to kick off this series, and uh, just incredible ability to communicate. That's not me humming, by the way, because I could. Mm, can we all try to do that same? Let's try. Mm, good, you're good, you're amazing. We'll figure that out in a second, and uh, there we go. Great job. Can we thank our productions team? What a great job they do. Good job. So, David. Bowden, 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 I think is how you say his name, uh, just a great spoken word artist. You can find that on YouTube and watch it again if you like, but we can't kick off a series called I Am any better than that, and just did a great job walking us through all these different layers. It's a privilege to get to be here with you today. My name is Todd Arnett, the lead pastor here at Trinity Church. If you're visiting with us today, I want to especially welcome you. Thank you for making this a part of your weekend. For the rest of us, great to see you. Glad you're here. We kick off a brand new series today. And if you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of John for the next eight weeks because that's where we find the eight I am statements of Jesus are all contained in this one gospel. John is the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And chapter eight is where we'll be today as we look at the first of these I am's. What we're doing is we're beginning to march towards Easter. What a great thing to march toward. And we get to talk about and focus our attention upon the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection changed everything. And as we march towards that and anticipate Jesus' conquering of sin and death, we want to begin to kind of lean in and hear from Jesus as to who he says he is. The tagline for this series, Jesus in his own words. We want to hear, who does Jesus say he is? And we're excited to kind of week by week look at a new idea as it's laid out for us in the Gospel of John. What was great about the video, as you saw it, you saw David kind of walk through the I am statements of Jesus. And as he did, you could recognize how each one of them connected to a need that we have. Connected to something powerful about how there is an incredible benefit that Jesus is such. Bill and I talked about this a little bit. I think even before we'd process the video, we'd watched it. But it kind of came up in conversation a few weeks ago. How we realized that what Jesus could have said. The I am statements could have been, I am the king of kings. I am the creator of the universe. All those things would have been true. But Jesus actually uses his words to say, I am things that benefit and bless you. That to me is powerful. Because someone who wanted to make a statement about who he was, did it in the context of how it blesses and benefits you. That to me is really cool. Take a look at our graphic. Chris Petnack is our designer here at at Trinity Church. He does a great job at just coming up with these different icons for our series. And I love this one. He's got all of these uh, I am's within this. Look at who Jesus said he was. He said he was the bread of life for our nourishment. He said that he was the light of the world because we were in darkness. He said that he was the door or the gate and that for that purpose of protecting us from outsiders. He said that he's the good shepherd who cares deeply for us. He is the vine because we emanate from him. He sustains us. We are the branches. He is the way, the truth, and the life because we need direction. He is the resurrection and the life because we need hope. He is the I am. And so I'm excited to weekly begin to look into 
these various components of Jesus, this is our goal, that over the course of the next eight weeks, your heart would be drawn to him. And as your heart is drawn to Jesus, guess what? It's easier to follow him. Because once again, you just continue to fall in love with him. Jesus, thank you for being Emmanuel. Thank you for being God with us. You have some notes in your worship folder. If you want to get those out, we'll go through those today. Remember also, if you are in a home group, those are your discussion questions kind of embedded in the weekend notes. So you'll have those nice and handy as we, um, as we go through that discussion later on this week. We dive today into the first of the I am's. Interestingly enough, it wasn't actually in the graphic. It's the I am that is so foundational and so fundamental that without it, the others don't make sense. Without the one that we're going to explore today, the other I am's are actually impossible. Impossible that Jesus could have been them. So we go right to the very beginning, the most critical of all of them. Today we'll see that Jesus makes the audacious claim of being God. And we'll watch the people's reaction to it, so much so it will infuriate them to want to kill him on the spot. And that's going to be where we go today. The question, the thing I want kind of ruminating in your mind is this, in your notes. If you believe that Jesus is God, his words then become authoritative for your life. That is the cause effect. If you believe him to be God, his words get to be your authority. Number one in your notes today, Jesus claimed to be I am. Jesus claimed to be I am. Now, first look, you might read that and say, and what? Why why is this important? Let's unpack it a little bit, and I promise we'll get there. As we look at this, uh, your your Bibles are open to John chapter 8. Each week that we look at an I am, it's going to be embedded in a context. So that's actually why I was looking forward to this series. I love to tell the story. I love to tell stories that are in the Bible, these narratives, because they help the Bible become very relatable to us. So the context of where we're at, we find ourselves, excuse me, in John chapter 8, we'll pick it up, chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. These, this is the crowd, this is the audience that Jesus is talking to. It says, to the Jews who had believed him, that last phrase, really important, who had believed him, these aren't critics, These aren't antagonists. They're not trying to trip him up. They have believed him. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, if my teaching is authoritative in your life, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Really important as we look anytime at scripture, especially in a narrative, we understand who's in the audience. Who is Jesus addressing? This time it's not specifically his 12 disciples. This time it's not the antagonists who are trying to trip him up or trap him. This is a group of people who are believing in him. They are following him. They are those who are saying, we think you might be him. You might be the long-awaited Messiah. So that's the context of where we're going to find this next set of words. Jesus' last statement, you've heard that before, right? Then you shall know the truth. The truth will set you free. That's a very well-known, famous statement. If I'm, I'm just off the top of my head, am I remembering? Oh, no, it's totally, I was singing different. Um, at the bowl, it's uh, without a vision, people perish, right? Is that what's kind of is over the inscribed? Um, it's actually at USC's philosophy department. It says this, truth will set you free. Interesting missing of an article, and that is no dig on USC. I'm just saying, but by missing the article, the, that changes the statement. 
You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, that statement actually inflames his audience. They begin to say, we've never been slaves of anyone. And I'm going, do you not know your own history? You've been slaves of almost everybody. What are you talking about? And so begins now, remember the audience, this is a group of people that were following him. And this now becomes one of probably the most heated conversations, heated arguments in all of scripture is what we're about to read. But remember, this is Jesus talking to those who believed in him. That statement sets them off and then they begin to say things like this. They make a statement, at least we are not illegitimate children. The inference, because you are. Remember we said in our Christmas series, we tried to get in the shoes of people like Mary and Joseph and this phenomenon of Mary being with child before she was, she was engaged but not yet married to Joseph. The rumor mill started. And so here we are, watch this, 30 years later, that reputation is still with Jesus and the people are making an inference. At least we know who our dad is. That's a pretty significant shot. Then they go on to accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan. Now, for us today, we might go, and what does that matter? Why would that be painful? Who cares? You know, what's the whole point? In the first century in Israel, this was a big deal because the Samaritans were a group of people lived up to the north, towards the west, to the coast. This is a group of people who had been ethnically mixed hundreds of years before They were not honoring to God in terms of their faith, their walk, and were despised by the Jews. Jesus came from Nazareth, which was also north, but had was not a Samaritan, and therefore he's being lumped in with a group of people that they despised, but for no reason. Totally untrue. And then this, in verse 48, they accuse him of being demon-possessed. The other things are one thing, but then you've kind of crossed a line. It's an interesting thing. We see it in the Gospels, how consistently those who were antagonists to Jesus, they didn't know what to do with his power. They didn't know what to do with the fact that this person could not walk and within moments with Jesus is jumping around. They didn't know what to do with the fact that this person was blind and then with some interaction with Jesus, they can see. So people didn't know how to process. This guy is incredibly powerful to heal and does other miracles that we cannot explain. And therefore, it left them with one of two choices. Either his power comes from God or his power comes from Satan. And that's what the people are here inferring. And that's obviously changed the conversation. I guess the simple answer is to say the honeymoon is over. Their following of Jesus has changed. By the way, really important you hear this. In the conversation, Jesus is also going to speak truth to this group of people. Here's some of the things he's saying, and it's very important that you hear this part of the conversation. Jesus says, no, you have actually been enslaved. And I'm not talking about all the people groups who've enslaved you. I'm simply saying you've been enslaved to sin. He goes on to say that they're indifferent to Jesus's words, that they like to pick and choose what things he has to say and, and hone in those, but they dismiss those things they don't like. He says that they're determined to kill him in verse 40. He knows their heart. He knows the ultimate plan, even though maybe there wasn't a single person that day who thought, I know we're out to kill and plot Jesus. Remember, there were other groups who tried to do that. This group were those who were believing in him. He says, finally, no, the works I do, they're not because I'm demon-possessed, but the reality is when we talk about whose children are whose, you're children of the devil. 
Those are not usually the words you say when you want to be popular. Right? I mean, just something think about that. That's not really, I really want to gain a huge gathering. By the way, all of you who are following me, children of the devil. That doesn't go too well. Lastly, he says, you're liars. You're not speaking the truth. Here's what I want you to notice that's really important about Jesus. Jesus does not say what people want to hear. Jesus speaks truth. He does it always, and even though it might be hard to see in this context, in this particular conversation, he always does so embedded in grace. But remember John 1.14, he came full of grace and truth. He holds both of those realities. It's not an either or for Jesus. It's both and. But Jesus never says what people want to hear. He tells them the truth because he loves them so much. It's really important we hear that each and every time we look at Jesus's life because I know that we're tempted to do different. It's amazing how many times I talk to people, like think about it this way. You might talk very, very strongly to a close friend or your spouse, but you're pretty timid in the workplace about the problem that you talk to the other people about. Because you don't want to ruffle feathers. You don't, you feel very passionately. You'd love to speak truth, but you kind of mince your words and you beat around the bush because you don't want to make waves. Jesus had this amazing ability to speak the truth in love, to be full of grace and truth. And he did so not trying to gain a gathering, but instead to, to help people where they needed. He'd done this earlier in chapter six. We're going to look at that next week related to the bread of life. But even very early in the gospel, back to John chapter two, verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Why? For he knew all people. He knew what people were after, what they were looking for. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So Jesus is not looking to become popular. Jesus is looking to present himself as Messiah that he came to be. Back to chapter 8, then they ask the ultimate accusatory question. And the tone is really rich and very brought out in our English translation. Who do you think you are? That's what the people finally put to him. Jesus, who do you think you are? And Jesus answers them. He's all too happy to answer. John chapter 8, verse 58. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. This father, they had alluded to the fact that we are Abraham's children. Jesus says, this so-called father of yours, before he was ever even born, I am. Watch this. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why such an emotive, highly charged response? They say He says these words, I am, and they pick up rocks to kill him. That is a pretty significant response. I have said a lot of things to people, but never been met with rocks. Okay? So there's something about those words that elicits something in those that we're hearing. And the simple thing we're going to look at today is what Jesus is saying in that statement. He says it multiple other times in the Gospels. I am God. We'll see it. Number two in your notes today, I am is the personal name for God. I am is the personal name for God. There's a reason that the Jews become enraged at Jesus' words here in John chapter 8 because he's alluding to something 
that we're going to go back to the source and look at today. He's alluding to the idea that I am is the very personal, real name of God. Here's what I mean. My good friend Scott's going to help me today. Scott, you want to help me out? You guys know this guy? Okay, good, good. All right, turn around here. Okay, so here's my buddy. First off, let's start with the fact. Let me tell them some true things about you. You are a human being. Absolutely. Last I checked. Now, they're not nodding like they were the first hour, so I'm not sure. No, no, he is. I'm telling you the truth. Scott is a human being. And secondly, what's true, uh, so we've defined your species. Secondly, it's true. Scott is male. He's a man. You know his gender. Thirdly, Scott lives in the Inland Empire. Is that true? Absolutely. Okay, so Scott lives in it. So we know his species. We know his gender. We know his locale. But what really then makes things real, what really helps us understand who he is, is when we know his name. This is not just a human being who happens to be male, who happens to live in the Inland Empire. This is Scott Sames. And that makes him unique and it helps you know who you're talking to when you're talking to him and not just those other three things. When you know those other three things, you can have some kind of shallow conversation, but when you know it's Scott, you can talk about a lot of things. Good job. Way to be. Here's what we're saying. When you use the word God, just as it is, you are talking about the reality of a spiritual being who is distinct from humans. That's kind of all you can do with that word is because that's what it means. There is an otherness about him. Now watch a new, a new degree. As far as more specificity, you can say the word Lord and Lord then means something a little bit more specific than just God. It actually infers and, and really demands allegiance because it determines authority. Lord is saying, by essence, someone and being, some being who is rightfully, authoritatively over you. But when you say, I am, when you say, Yahweh, which, by the way, I love the songs Bill picked for this weekend. That's what you sang and you shouted at the beginning of our service today. When you say, Yahweh, you say the personal name of God. Catch that. He's not just God. He's not just Lord. He's specifically I am. He's specifically Yahweh. In the Old Testament, in the former covenant, that's how we refer every time. I don't know if you know this. When you look through your former covenant, every time you see the words the Lord all in lower caps, have you ever noticed that? It says the Lord and everything's in a, and the word Lord is in a lower cap, which is just kind of a weird, like you never see that normally. That means it's a designation. This is where the word in the original Hebrew is Yahweh. Other times you'll see in the, the former Testament, you'll see the word Lord and it's just capital L O R D all smaller case. But when it's all uppercase, but smaller, that is a specific reference to Yahweh. Yahweh, I am, is the personal name of God. And I want to walk you back today a little bit to see the context. By the way, which is really cool, um, the personal name for God is evidenced in the New Testament. That's Jesus. So you can have a conversation with people, and you can talk about God, and you can talk about some things, but in, in our culture today, you really don't know who you're talking about, right? I mean, God is a lot of things to a lot of people. 
But when you actually get specific and you name Jesus, the personal name of God, the second member of the Trinity, things change a little bit. It's not generic anymore. It's not vague. Now, they might think of Jesus differently than you do, but you at least have in common. Now we're talking about someone who lived 2,000 years ago around the planet in Palestine. That is this name of God, this name that we're talking about. And it makes the conversation a little more interesting, a little more specific. Exodus chapter 3 is where we're going to go back to in the former Testament. You can turn there if you like. Let me set the context. Here's what's going on. Jacob had a family. He had 12 sons. And at this time in the story, the 12 sons live in a place that God had given to them, but there is famine in the land. And as a result, Jacob moves his entire family down to Egypt. His next to youngest son, Joseph, is literally second in command of Egypt, which is really the power of the world at that time. And their family settles in. They get their own land, their own farms, and they begin to multiply. They begin to get so strong in number that that first Pharaoh who favored them dies, but a new Pharaoh comes and he's afraid of their strength. So he begins to actually turn them from free people into slaves. And so the people of the Hebrews who'd come down as Jacob's family as they've expanded, now they are the slaves of the Egyptians. Their number continues to grow so strong that a new Pharaoh comes and he is so concerned of their strength that then he says, and every male child that is born, I want you to kill them the minute they come out of the womb. Post-birth abortion at that level, that's where they're going to be murdered. And so that reality takes place and all of a sudden there is just all these waves of, of fear, rightfully so among the people. Moses is spared. And of all places, Moses ends back up into Pharaoh's home. Moses is a Hebrew raised in an Egyptian home. And as he's raised in Pharaoh's home, he never forgets. He's told consistently who he is. And one day it gets the better of him. One day he's out and about and he witnesses an Egyptian guard cruelly beating a Hebrew slave. And he intervenes and his rage takes him to the place where he murders the Egyptian guard. And realizes now he set a series of things in motion. He cannot stay. And he flees. He flees to a place far and away called Midian. And when he gets to Midian, he actually takes on a whole new persona. He becomes a shepherd. He becomes married. He begins having children. And and basically, Moses thought, that's how my life's going to go. I spent the first 40 years... In this unique situation in Pharaoh's home, while my people were being oppressed, I've run away because I murdered someone, and now I'm going to be a shepherd for the rest of my days. And so one day when Moses is out doing what shepherds do, he's taking care of his his flocks, he notices over here to the side that there's a bush. And the bush is unique, not just because it's on fire, but it doesn't become consumed. Now, I'm sure the first time he looked, he didn't just kind of go, well, that's unique, and keep walking by. Usually fire spread, so there's a little bit of fear, like, wait, what's going on? And then he's watching and notices that nothing's happening to the bush. It's not being consumed. It's just staying lit up. So then he walks closer to see what's going on. And of all things, a voice speaks to him from the bush. And the the, the voice says, I am God. Now, in this conversation, this voice, this God being is going to tell Moses, Moses, I'm sending you back to where you came from. You're not just going to be a shepherd the rest of your life. I'm sending you back where you came from. And I want you to deliver, to rescue your oppressed people and lead them out. He says, 
I will be with you every step of the way. My presence will be constantly with you. And secondly, here's a sign that where you're standing right now, you're going to bring the Hebrews, the former slaves as refugees. You're going to bring them right here and they're going to worship me on this hill. So in that whole context, Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, is in the middle of that dialogue, in the middle of that reality, and this is what we find. It says this, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites, and I love that word, I'm not planning on going, but if I were to, right, suppose I were to do this, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Which God? Remember, we're talking a very polytheistic, like multiple gods culture of the Egyptians, right? They worshiped all kinds of things. The God of the sun, the God of the river, the God of the fields, the whole thing. So which God is the one who has sent me to you? It's a very legitimate question. And then he says, then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, and there it is, not on my screen, but most likely in your Bible, all in lowercase caps, the Lord Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. I am. This is the personal name of God. And so it's Jesus's reference to this name, this personal name, I am, that God gave to Moses that infuriates the Jews now literally hundreds of years later in Jerusalem as they're having this confrontation. Catch this today. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is not making a slight inference. They understood it very clearly. He is claiming to be God. And they were going to do something about that. That claim separates him from other people. And a reaction is necessary. When someone claims to be God, you don't just go, how nice for you. You do something. You react in such a way. Their reaction, they took up stones to stone him. Here's the concern for us today. What do you do? What do you do with that assertion? What do you do with the historical figure named Jesus of Nazareth who claimed to be very God. Number three in your notes, because Jesus claimed to be God, you need to respond. You need to respond to him accordingly. As we'll discover over the next few weeks, looking at these I am statements, like we've said earlier today, none of them make sense. None of them can actually happen unless Jesus really is God. Unless his deity is really in in place, he cannot be the light of the world. He cannot be the bread of heaven that gives that kind of nourishment. He cannot be the door. He cannot be the good shepherd. He cannot be the true vine. He cannot be the way, the truth, and the life. He cannot be the resurrection and the life unless he is first God. Now, for some of you today, when you hear the phrase, Jesus claimed to be God, your next reaction is Uh Uh-huh, and? 
You have either grown up in a church environment or you have come to faith in such a way that you are absolutely convinced that that is true. And so that statement really, in a weird way, in some ways does nothing to you in the sense that you've probably taken it for granted or you go, exactly. But either way, you believe that Jesus is God. And the trouble is when you start talking to someone about that belief and you haven't really processed why that statement is so inflammatory, you'll have a conversation. The conversation goes something like this. Yes, I, um, you know, I go to church, etc. Yes, that's fine. But really the issue is I believe that Jesus is God. And the look you get and the crazy eyes and the whole business, you can't even begin to compute. Why is that so problematic for you? Let's pull back. Let me help you with something that just might make that conversation go a little better next time. Take Jesus and set him aside here just for a moment. And now let's fill in that blank. Fill in that blank with anyone else from your world, anyone else in the world who would say, I am God. And now what do you do with that person? You're probably thinking in real time, cuckoo cuckoo, right? Anyone else who makes that claim, there's someone that in your mind, you set off over here and you go, that's nuts. You might be a lot of things, but you're not God. And if you claim to be, you have a psychiatric problem. You had no problem with that claim over here. And I know for a host of reasons, but the point is when you're talking to someone who has no faith in Jesus yet, that looks like the same conversation. Some of you are here and on your faith journey, in that process that God was using to wake you from the dead, to bring you to saving faith in his son, this was the hurdle. And it was this high. I cannot, of all the things, God was doing something in me. God is stirring something in me. I don't even, I can't even say it's God at the beginning. I don't know what it is. Something is broken. It's not right. I'm beginning to search. I'm beginning a journey to try to find the void that's missing. And as you were on that journey, somebody introduced you to Jesus. And one of the first things they said about Jesus is Jesus claimed to be God. And that barrier was this high. You're just like, I can't even begin to fathom how that could be. And, and as you walked through that process, there were two things that were very, very important to that barrier becoming lower and lower in your life. There were two things. It was number one, it was evidence. There was more truth you needed. You needed to know more of what that meant when Jesus claimed to be God. You needed to know more of why Jesus would ever say anything like that. But watch this. And much more than evidence, you needed faith. You needed a growing confidence in the fact that God was the one who put that void in your life. God was the one who put that vacuum that you were looking to fill. And the more you found about Jesus and the more you believe that he just may be who he says he is, the more he fit that shape. And that barrier began to get lower and lower until you finally said, yes, Jesus claimed to be God and I absolutely believe he is. There's others of us that are here today and you're not there yet. Your barrier is still, it's even higher than that. You're just like, you know what? That's where it all gets nuts for me. I, I get the religious thing. You're all really nice people. Um, I want to be a good person. I'm trying to find truth. I really am on a truth search. But the minute when Jesus says he's God, you just lost me. Like I just, back to the first statement, that's literally what crazy people say. 
So I can't go there yet. And I just want to say this for everyone in this room probably fits in one of those three categories. I'm glad you're all here. No matter where you're at on that spectrum, no matter which of those boxes you might fit in today, I am so glad you're here. And the simple thing I want to push out into you today is simply this. Respond appropriately to what you believe Jesus is, who he said he is. Here's the problem. We typically like to think that there's a category that Jesus came to present himself as that Jesus absolutely did not come to present himself as. And I want to clarify that. I told you when I was candidating that I quote C.S. Lewis way too much, but this today, there was no other one to quote but this. Listen to what he says. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man... And said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He could not be. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God. Or else a madman or else something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. Watch. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, I want to help you with this today. And I don't mind speaking the truth in love. That when Jesus claimed to be God, he left the world of great moral teacher. You cannot have that category anymore. And it's like Lewis says, he's really one of those three things. He is either a liar, someone who knows he's not, but says it anyways. He's a lunatic, someone who's crazy, believes he is, but is not, or he is Lord. Those are the three boxes that stand in front of you. There's no fourth box about him being a great moral teacher. And that's what's so important for us to look at today. And so my words are simply this. When the truth of Jesus' claim comes in front of your face, now what do you do with that? If you're here today and you haven't yet, you're just not yet at that place where you're ready to buy that, ready to say, yes, I really believe Jesus is God. Can I then ask you, if you're on that search, here's one of the great things Jesus said. If you seek, you're going to find. Honestly, just honestly ask God. God, Jesus said he was deity. He said he was God. I have a hard time believing that. Would you give me what I need? Would you give me what I need to put my faith, to have a growing confidence in that truth? And don't be surprised when he does. Because that's the kind of God that God is. He meets that request. He says yes every time to people who seek him wholeheartedly. And I want to flip it. I want to say this. If you're here today and you're in that first, because I believe Jesus is God, I've I really can't be- not remember not believing that. Or I came to such a significant saving moment, rescuing moment in my life. I've never looked back. Great. I just want to put this in front of you today. Then live consistently with what you say you believe. You see, the phrase we can never say, it's the most inconsistent set of words, is no Lord. 
Lord, if Jesus is this, if he is deity, if he is God, our answer is always yes. He deserves that place in our lives. And the thing that we can get, remember it's how we ended the James series, was self-deception. I can hear the word, but I don't do it. I don't do anything with it. That is a self-deception that James warned us. You are headed down a bad path if you keep deceiving yourself, thinking it's good to know the truth but not do it. Jesus said the same thing, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Now, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father. Many will say unto me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and did we not drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Watch this. Jesus isn't interested in spectacular things that you do in his name. When all the while you aren't interested and look at the quote of doing the will of his father who is in heaven. Great displays of religiosity are not important to him. Living daily according to his design, however, is. Theologian Suzanne de Dietrich, she said it well. She said verses 21 through 23 back in Matthew 7 are a dreadful warning. The most orthodox avowals of faith have no value in the eyes of God if they are not translated, watch us, into concrete obedience to his will. One may with his lips loudly profess his faith in God and even invoke Jesus as Lord, yet deny him by thoughts, words, and acts. My plea with you today is not to deceive yourself in walking around saying, I believe that Jesus is God. By the way, a little later in James, James chapter 2, remember what he says? You say Jesus is Lord, great. Even the demons believe that. I've had that conversation too many times with people in my life. I've said, here's the simple reality. You have faith on the same level as demons. To believe he's Lord, it's a great start. But to walk his ways, that's the design. That's what he's after. The demons never will, but you get the choice. You get to choose or not. Here's the great news. Because Jesus is the great I am, he alone can be the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is able to be the door that truly protects us. He can share, he can care for us in the way that only the good shepherd can. He is the true vine from which we are connected as branches. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life because he is the one and only God. And he is the resurrection and the life because he is risen. So this is, is this good news? Can I get a yay God? One, two, three. Yay God. In your notes, the I am statements of Jesus found in the gospel of John make sense because Jesus is the great I am. Without him being this integral piece we look at today, none of the rest makes sense. But because he is, they absolutely do. This week, if you believe that Jesus is God, his words become authoritative in your life. Let's pray. Father, we look at your word today. We thank you for the truth. We thank you that Jesus didn't beat around the bush. Jesus didn't say things that people wanted to hear. Jesus spoke the truth in love. He came full of grace and truth. And so we thank you that he made the claim that we can now attach ourselves to. We can not just give mental assent, but we can believe where the rubber meets the road in our lives and we can walk according to his words, his design. 
We're so grateful for that. Help us be that people this week who don't just say, I believe Jesus is God, but live my own way. I believe Jesus is God. I want to do the will of his Father in heaven. You may be here today, and we talked about you earlier. You've said, you know what? I, this Jesus is God thing, I just stumble it over it every time. I really don't think I can go there. I don't, I'm not ready to make that decision. You have said that to yourself. You have been in that place week after week. But the great news is there was something that happened today had nothing to do with who was on the stage. It had everything to do with what God was doing in your heart. And you are ready to make that decision. You are ready to step over that line. Not only to say, yes, I believe that Jesus is who he said he was, but I'm ready to follow him with my life. It begins by admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior. Admit that you've been living life on your terms and you already knew before you walked in the door today that that doesn't work. Believe. Believe that Jesus is the God he said he was. Believe that he lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death. He was raised supernaturally on the third day. Believe that Jesus is the only savior available. See is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I am going to walk your way. I choose you. I'm going to follow you. I will not do it without failure, but I will follow you. And we pray today that you would make that decision, that you would put your faith squarely in the Son of God. Thank you, Father, for these I am's. Thank you for how incredibly encouraging they're going to be. Help us be a people of gratitude throughout each week. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.